Hello everyone, I hope that you're doing well. My name is Audrey Casper and you're listening to I'm Afraid of Climate Change. In today's episode, I'll be going through a brief history of redlining and what that might mean for current heat catastrophes and how we can use green infrastructure to help build more resilient communities and address prior harm. Well, hello! Long time, no podcast. Uh, It's been a long journey since the last time I produced an episode, but I'm excited to be back with season two. Basically, uh, the last time I had updated you guys, I was in the middle of this switch between deciding what I wanted to major in, and I switched from doing international affairs to English to now settled on environmental science. So I've spent the past few months kind of prioritizing my education in that way and learning new things that I'm hoping to bring new light and shed new light to topics with this podcast format. I Some of the things that I've been doing recently uh, this past semester are studying green infrastructure in DC, looking at bioswales, which are these storm runoff water management systems that can help with flooding, especially when you have um, impervious material like concrete and dealing with that as a matter of increased flooding with climate-related disasters, but also just generally weather management. And weather management has been something on a lot of our minds lately. We see things in the headlines about how July 2022 was the hottest month ever recorded in Tampa, Florida. Houston has had its hottest summer on record ever. The UK temperature has topped 40 degrees Celsius, which is 104 degrees Fahrenheit for the first time ever. And when we see these kind of statistics, it's a bit frightening and we start to wonder how human beings and our capacity for invention and for innovation can address these kinds of things. So I've been thinking a lot about green infrastructure and what that might mean for what the future looks like and how we can learn from past mistakes to address the future we want to see. I know for me, I've spent this past summer in Seattle doing an internship, an environmental science internship studying rip current hazard forecasting. And this past week, Seattle had its all-time record for the longest stretch of 90 degree days. And it's a bit frightening to think about weather systems and climate systems that you come to rely on suddenly becoming much more extreme and much more dangerous and how a city has to adapt to those things. So I'm hoping that through cycling through some of the past with green infrastructure and redlining, which I'll go on to define later, that we can learn something new and really focus on how we can have equitable green infrastructure sources. Before I get into a breakdown of the subject today, I want to talk about some of the experiences I've had in the past week that have led me to really question data generally about whether and about how it affects different communities at large. So recently, this past week, I visited the NCAR lab, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which is located in Colorado. And I was able to sit on some of these events for their innovators program, which was founded to prioritize interdisciplinary research, which can link social policy and behavioral sciences with physical sciences, like some of the things that I'm studying. And particularly, I was in conversation with one of the innovator fellows, Jessica Malit, who is a Howard PhD candidate. And her research 
focuses on this town in Miami, Florida called Little Haiti and how records of National Weather Service data about temperature there when compared to Miami at large is wholly inaccurate and kind of dismisses the lived experiences of people living there and the weather that they're experiencing being different from the chronicled historical weather data. This is a really fascinating topic that I hadn't thought much about before. Census data from 2000 shows that Little Haiti has a population of about 29,128 people, and of which 64.92% are Black and 14.74% are Latino. And their experience with temperature data and is inaccurate to the actual reality of what temperature feels like there. It's much, much hotter than general Miami records. And so some of the research that Jessica is doing is to retroactively bring awareness to the extremes of weather that they're experiencing, which aren't chronicled using national and federal data. It's easy to think when you pull up a weather service on your phone that the location you're looking at will generally apply, but there are so many factors outside of just what the what the weather, what the temperature at a certain height is compared to the actual felt temperature. And one of those factors that I was talking with one of the other fellows about is tree cover and focusing on urban forestry as a measure of protection against heat and against climate-related injury. There is a clear link between historically segregated neighborhoods or red line neighborhoods, as we'll get into, and inaccuracies with temperature recordings, but also a lack of tree coverage, which inhibits people's resiliency against heat extremes because trees are so important with mitigating those extremes. Redlining as a concept came across my personal radar with the 2017 book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which seeks to highlight the history of segregation in America, particularly as this intersects with legal history. The Legal Information Institute defines redlining as a discriminatory practice that consists of systematic denial of services such as mortgages, insurance loans, and other financial services to residents of certain areas based on their race or ethnicity. Redlining disregards individuals' qualifications and creditworthiness to refuse such services solely based on the residency of those individuals in minority neighborhoods, which were also quite often deemed hazardous or dangerous. Essentially, with an FDR New Deal era government, which sought to issue mortgages and FHA loans to allow its citizens to buy houses, there were color-coded maps that would allocate people to loan worthiness scores on a scale of A to D, where A was the best and D was hazardous, and with these with these allocations we saw that predominantly black neighborhoods were marked in the red hazardous zones which because they were marked in red gave us the term redlining not only was redlining effective at perpetuating segregation but getting these fha loans was fundamental to white families establishing generational wealth that can still be seen today an analysis by savi showed that redlined areas have lowered earning opportunities greater income disparities, an increase in police violence, worse overall health, and worse environmental outcomes. This tree cover is critical for having the resilience to deal with extreme heat events, 
A 2021 paper by Robert I. McDonald and several others found that, quote, tree cover cools the air primarily by shading surfaces such as concrete and asphalt, thus preventing heat storage and reducing the urban heat island effect. Tree cover can also reduce temperatures by transpiring water, increasing the fraction of heat going to latent rather than sensible heat. Tree cover can reduce land surface temperature by 10 to 20 degrees Celsius on a summer's day. The urban heat island effect explains how just the physical makeup of a city with concrete, pavement buildings, and other surfaces can absorb and retain heat and therefore increase the overall temperature in cities compared to other regions. And as you can imagine, having trees in your area can greatly impact the heat absorption. The paper also found that, quote, in 92% of the urbanized areas surveyed, low-income blocks have less tree cover than high-income blocks. On average, low-income blocks have 15.2% less tree cover and are 1.5 degrees hotter than high-income blocks. The greatest difference between low- and high-income blocks was found in urbanized areas in the northeast of the United States, where low-income blocks in some urbanized areas have 30% less tree cover and are 4 degrees Celsius higher. For the uninitiated Americans, including myself, who don't understand the metric system that well, 4 degrees Celsius is 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit. So consider the difference between 85 degrees and 92 degrees, or 90 degrees and 97 degrees. And when weather reports aren't localized enough to take into account the differences between areas that have high tree coverage and low tree coverage, even though they exist in the same area, the same municipality. This becomes an issue with bringing out proper heat advisory warnings and making sure that people are protected from extreme heats. The United States history of racial segregation extends far beyond this 20th century history with redlining and instead invokes us to think about a future of climate disaster that is heavily biased by our history with physical location of living. Current, modern, contemporary green infrastructure projects are imperative because in order to make up for the disparities between mature, well-kept tree canopy in these green-lighted, high-income, primarily white neighborhoods and low-income, primarily black and brown neighborhoods means that we have to currently take active steps to build up this infrastructure to protect us coming up into the future. And more and more studies are coming to the same conclusion. A 2020 study published in Climate Journal found that, quote, land surface temperatures are as much as 36 degrees Fahrenheit higher in most formerly redline neighborhoods than non-redline neighborhoods, end quote. To physically live in a place, to grow crops, to raise a family, these are all impacted by our history of redlining and the way that environment intertwines with our history of racial segregation. According to research conducted by Portland State University, the Science Museum of Virginia, and Virginia Commonwealth University, redline neighborhoods are hotter than the highest rated neighborhoods by an average of almost five degrees. When we consider areas that need an increased allocation of resources to deal with heat-related injuries and deaths, we need to consider these historically redline neighborhoods and the ways that infrastructure has failed them both in the past and presently. Not only was I excited to have conversations like this at the NCAR lab this past week, but I'm getting more and more enthusiastic about how other organizations are choosing to address this history and focus on more equitable green infrastructure. Because I live in DC, 
an organization that's been on my mind recently is the DC River Corps, which seeks to teach residents between 18 and 24 years old uh, the skills they need to build green infrastructure, particularly working on rain gardens or bioswales and planting native herbaceous plants and shrubs along streams and making sure that the environment is something that is built to outlast climate change and outlast climate disaster. This project is through DC's Latin American Youth Center and it really excites me that they're giving young people the tools to build a community that is resilient to climate change and that strengthens its community members instead of ignoring past harms and past prejudices. I'm also really excited by organizations like American Forest, which obviously is much bigger than a local DC organization, which they're trying to achieve what they call tree equity, which recognizes tree as life-saving infrastructure, as I had mentioned before, with their ability to absorb heat and provide a safe, climate-resilient way to deal with heat extremes. For some, it's easy to look at a field like forestry and think of it as something that is so separate from human beings' actual lives, where perhaps you're going out into the wilderness, taking a hike, then you forget that trees are such an integrated part of human experience and human existence and human resilience. But I think through studying these cases, you realize that it is so necessary that we build an environment that not only is protected by us, but supports us, and that we don't focus on preservation efforts that exist outside of preserving human beings and focusing on the history of racialized harm in this country and how we can effectively repair the harm that white Americans have caused in the past. I think it's incredibly important that we take into account this history of harm and instead of addressing it in a passive way by releasing these studies that show the importance of trees and how redline communities are not experiencing this same climate resilience because of the lack of canopy cover, that we instead take an active choice to build this green infrastructure that will in turn protect people from now and into the future so that we have the same benefits that can address past harm. In our efforts to preserve the environment, climate justice needs to be one of the first things on our mind because we exist in this entangled mess of social inequity that unless we address both things at once, it's not going to address anything. If you took anything away from this episode, I hope that it's an awareness of the way that your social history and social currency plays a role in your relationship to the climate. Well, thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. As I continue on with season two of this podcast, I hope to maintain the same spirit of analyzing our social history in this country with our current climate conversations. Next week, I plan to talk about Joe Manchin and discuss how our history of rural fossil fuel farming impacts our current conversation about climate protections and what we can learn from valuing that perspective within a historical context. I'm very thankful for all your support and I look forward to talking to you next week.